0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: We're going to go ahead and get started with the next panel. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce back to the stage uh, Chris Shaper, who will introduce our next speakers.
2: Hi everyone. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you um, Kim Han Nguyen, a research scientist working in health promotion and disparities research um, here at UCSF. Uh, Dr. Nguyen studies individual community and societal level influences underlying the patterning of modifiable risk factors including tobacco use, poor diet, and lack of access to health care. Um, and has been a great partner with us in uh, developing the industry document archives and the food document archives today. So with that.
3: Thanks, Chris. I am really excited to be here. Um, And uh, Stan uh, gave you a great overview of the tobacco archives and all the wonderful um, research that's come out of it and that's transformed um, tobacco, uh, you know, um, what we know about the uh, tobacco industry. And my colleague, uh, Kristen Kearns, talked about um, what, we lear- what she learned from um, the sugar documents about the sugar industry. And so, ta- so, so right now I'm going to talk about uh, our food research in the food industry in the tobacco archives. Uh, when you think about the tobacco archives, you think about tobacco industry uh, and all the practices, uh, particularly in marketing to vulnerable populations, uh, such as children and um, minorities. And um, But a few researchers have used the tobacco archive to look at food issues. Um, most famously is uh, Michael Moss in 2013 in his book Salt, sugar, and fat he wrote about um, the what happened with general foods and craft in, in the late 1980s and uh, journalists from the Chicago Tribune in two thousand eight wrote a great piece called Craving the Cookie, in which they followed um, the meetings between Philip Morris cigarette scientists and Braff's food scientists. So to really appreciate some of the uh, documents about it, of food uh, in the tobacco archives, um, 14 million documents uh, in the tobacco archives, uh, we key in the term soda, and 35,000 documents pop up. So that's a lot. And so we wanted to take a closer look at the Tobacco Archive with the broad research question of what was the relationship or what is the relationship um, between tobacco companies and sugar and beverage companies. Uh, So starting in uh, 2016, we um, uh, (coughs) took a deep dive into the Tobacco Archives. And so starting in the 1960s, tobacco uh, companies started to diversify into non tobacco industries in particular they were buying up food and beverage companies um, <clears throat> and it was a climate of uh, basically rising uh, concerns about uh, public health uh, of um, cigarettes on public health um, as well as increasing uh, government re- uh, regulation of cigarettes and so uh, we uncover some reasons why uh, they would interested in food and beverage. So this is a document from the tobacco archive um, of Philip Morris in 1978's annual report um, and discussing their acquisition of 7up, which is their first um, beverage company. And so it says, essentially, soft drinks like cigarettes and beer are reasonably priced, relatively low cost consumer items that give pleasure to users who repeat their purchases often when the quality of the product satisfies their expectations. So fast forward to the late 1980s, uh, Philip Morris purchased a few more um, uh, food and beverage companies and we're thinking of uh, buying craft. Um, and this is a document in the Tobacco Archive um, discussing um, why that might be a good reason, and this is uh, the uh, Philip Morris's CEO Hamish Maxwell, and he says, "People can quit smoking and drinking, but not eating." <laughs> so there are a lot of um, information and documents about the food and beverage companies that tobacco uh, um, companies purchase, um, and all of the brands that um, that were owned by these companies during. The time of ownership. And just some of that you may recognize. Um, <clears throat> and so we took a look a closer look to see what happened actually after uh, these companies were um, purchased by the tobacco companies. And what we found was a systematic uh transfer of people, knowledge, information, and technology from the tobacco companies to the sugar and beverage companies. And um, In 1985, Philip Morris purchased uh, General Foods, which was, at the time, the biggest uh, acquisition um, in corporate history. And in the subsequent years uh, began a elimination of the top um, management and uh, executives of General Foods, starting with uh, its CEO, James Ferguson, who had been CEO since 1973. And so this is a New York Times piece, um, discussing or uh, investigating the, the uh, corporate uh, reorganization of general foods, um, the General foods, as part of the Philip Morris companies, said that uh, they would eliminate most of its corporate staff um, and in that rep- and in during that process had replaced uh, some of the top management, including brand directors as well as marketing executives and this um, reorganization was complete in one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight when they got rid of the number two guy philip uh, Smith and instead of and, and basically the, all the division heads were now reporting directly to uh, Philip Morris. Um, one of the things that we also uh, discovered was that um, the technology that was developed for uh, cigarettes were um, uh, were applied to um, these uh, beverage companies. And this is a um, document from 1962 uh, from RJR, uh, Biochemical Research Division, and it's um, RJR was basically the first uh, tobacco company that uh, diversified into food and beverage, and they were thinking about buying um, some bev- beverage companies. And uh, the division head said, that thought it was a good idea because it is easy to characterize R.J. Reynolds merely as a tobacco company in a broader and much less restricting sense. However, R.J. RJ Reynolds is in the flavor business. So we wanted to take a look at some of the brands that uh, these tobacco companies um, purchased. And I wanted to share a little bit today about uh, one such brand, which is Hawaiian Punch, uh, which was developed in the 1930s um, and uh, in, by the 1950s was marketed as a adult mixer, so a uh, adult uh, cocktail mixer beverage. R.J. Reynolds purchased Hawaiian Punch um, in 1962, and we wanted to find out what happened to the uh, product. And what we found was a transformation of Hawaiian Punch uh, from an adult mixer to a kid's beverage. And um, we surmised from all the market research that was done on the product um, that this happened. And so this is, uh, we found a lot of um, focus groups done on Hawaiian um, uh, Punch between 1966 and 1969. And so this is uh, a taste test that was done uh, in 1969 on mothers and children. And it was comparing uh, two formulations of Hawaiian punch, one amber apple, uh, which, as it's uh, named, um, is more of an apple-color uh, fla- uh, apple uh, juice, and uh, red apple, which had artificial coloring of red coloring and uh, was formulated to be sweeter. It was comparing it to high-C apple, which was the uh, popular drink brand at the time. And the study found that the children preferred high-C apple over amber apple, uh, and the housewives or mothers chose uh, red over, uh, excuse me, chose amber over red. And the study recommended that they discontinue further development of the amber apple product and introduce red apple clearly catering to children's preferences. So we followed uh, the marketing of Hawaiian Punch and found that Punchy was the center of uh, all of the marketing campaigns uh, of Hawaiian Punch between the 1960s and the 1980s. And Punchy was this cartoon character, this irreverent cartoon character kid um, with a Hawaiian uh, striped Hawaiian shirt. And his tagline was, uh, how would you like your Hawaiian Punch? And he would punch Olaf, the adult per, uh, character, and run away. And um, he was uh, featured in many of the promotional materials, uh, such as uh, wristwatches and board games, as well as book covers. And uh, he was spun off, or R.J.R. spun off uh, Hawaiian Punch to another beverage, to a beverage company, but um, stated that Punchy was the best salesman that the beverage ever had. So in following many of these products, we found that um, a lot of the marketing uh, strategies to promote these uh, products were, um, were applied um, and really honed uh, by cigarette companies to increase uh, smoking in children. So some, some such as kid-friendly flavors, uh, the packaging of these um, products and uh, giving away toys and games and premiums, using fun colors, and also the use of cartoon characters. And so you may recognize this guy. Um, He's Joe Camel, and he is the uh, cartoon mascot of uh, the Camel brand, also owned by RJR. And um, RJR vehemently denied that he was used as a ploy to get children to smoke. But in 1997, um, in the Mangini versus R.J. Reynolds case, the court ruled that indeed Joe Camel was um, used to entice children and the, and, uh, the company was uh, forced to n- uh, not use Joe Camel in its marketing materials. However, Punchy to this day is still used as the mascot of Hawaiian Punch. So that's all I have for today. And I th- open
2: to questions. Hi, so do we have any questions? We have people with microphones in several places in the auditorium.
4: Uh there. what about in the archives? Are there items on deceptive advertisement to children on Saturday morning cartoons? Uh this is under the uh, auspices of the Federal Trade Commission. Many years ago, they were investigating these deceptive practices and had modified some of the children's shows. Did these show up in the archives?
3: There's a lot in there. Um, it's quite interesting to work in the archive. Um, so uh, there are um, some of the FTC um, documents um, I, uh, it's, a, you know, in terms of the a process of the FT, during that time, they collect a lot of documents, so it's in there. Um, are you talking about what they know, um, the, the companies, what how they um, market to children? I think that this, what I presented was some of the, sort of a slice of what is in there. Um, um, you know, there's a lot of proprietary information or, um, from the companies, but there are also uh, extraneous uh, documents, so from, you know, government um, sort of um, um, rulings, um, <clears throat> newspaper articles, so there's a lot that you can sort of find out about any issue, really. I hope I answered your question.
5: the uh, food industry documents that I'll show in just a sec. We do have about six volumes from the FTC's uh, rulemaking, uh, the public comments from the 70s for that um, children's advertising uh, issue. So there are about six volumes. In... in During your talk, I was thinking about
6: the marijuana industry and the rapid growth. And, of course, in San Francisco, there's popular support for legalization. But I've been really struck by the, um, the marketing to children, you know, the gummies and the worms and the flavors. And I'm wondering, with all the expertise in this room, Are people actively working on that topic, are we, so that we're not discovering the marijuana archives in retrospect, you know, (laughs) at our next conference?
3: Absolutely, I think this is very, it's uncovering a lot of um, parallels in all kinds of um, these products to children. Um, And I'm sure Stan has a lot to say about that. Um, But, okay. (laughs) Yeah,
4: in fact, um, we've, we published a paper called Waiting for the Opportune Moment about how in the 60s and the 70s the tobacco companies were getting ready to go into the cannabis business as soon as it was legal. So, uh, yeah. Of course, anyone who has, following upon what Chris said, anyone who has any internal documents related to that, we're happy to take them. I don't think that, that the cannabis industry is yet as well-developed and corporatized as you have with food, and and tobacco, but I think that's coming, and I think it's very scary.
3: Yeah, there's um, research on flavored tobacco um, products like vape and things like that, and we're very interested in that, following um, that line of research and its application to um, flavors and colors in uh, sugary beverages to children. Uh, So I think that there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration and um, an overlap.
2: There was a hand up in the middle, in
7: the back. I was just going to elaborate on the tobacco industry moving into the uh, uh, cannabis space. The alcohol industry is moving into the cannabis space very aggressively. So, if that's an area you want to get get involved, that's that. Those are who, who you, those are some of the people you might want to look at.
2: So I think we have time for one more question. I see a hand up here.
1: Actually, I think one of the common themes between sugar, cannabis, and tobacco may be addictiveness. Um, And we're seeing in the cannabis industry vast increases in potency that really parallel what happened with manipulation of nicotine. Um, I'd be thrilled and delighted if anyone wants to help find documentation of what's going on there. But one of my questions for you is on the sugar side, um, did you see any expressed discussion in the documents and in the archives on the issue of addictiveness and whether manipulation of sugar content um,
3: creates habit-forming? Yeah,
1: um, habit forming.
3: yeah. Oh, right, caffeine. Um, <clears throat> we're very interested in all, in those issues, um, and yes, there are. Uh, I mean, through from the very beginning, they're very interested in how to... Um, get people to drink more of these beverages particularly children and so um, we have been uh, pursuing um, the issue of caffeine the addition of caffeine into these beverages which I know is a big issue in these energy drinks Um, so I think I think overall it's just there's a lot there Um, and we've been you know um, pulling these threads and um, it's been fascinating so hopefully you all think it is as well.
2: So our next speaker is Rachel Takeda. Rachel is a documents specialist at the um, UCSF library, and Rachel has been working with the Industry Documents Library for many years and has been working with the the Food Industry Documents Archive since its inception. Um, Rachel uh, teaches classes in how to use the archives and is going to walk us through a demonstration of how to use the archives in just a moment. But she also does work to promote the archives, promote the use of them, does a lot of the processing of the documents, and is the person who many of you would reach if you reached out to the archives um, for assistance or had any questions about how to access it. Um, So with that, I'll turn it over to Rachel. All
5: right, so I'm Rachel Takeda, and I help run the UCSF Industry Documents Library, of which the Food Industry Documents is a part. Um, and I just have to say, um, events like this just uh, make my job so worth it. I love hearing about the research coming out of these documents. You know, you get really bogged down every day into sort of processing these documents and getting them in there and making sure the metadata is correct and all this, and then you get to hear about this life-changing research, and it's just, um, it does my heart good. So anyway, thank you so much for coming out here today. Um, just a little background before I do a quick demo, and it's going to hopefully be really quick, because uh, we want to get to the more of the research stuff. Um, so, you know, by the numbers. So today is our launch, our official launch, November fifteenth, 2018. Thank you for being here. Um, we currently have 15 collections posted to the uh, food industry. And uh, we're hoping, of course, to put many more in as time goes by. Um, We currently have, as of today, 159,000 pages in a little over 32,000 documents. Um, And give us a couple months, we're trying to double it. So come back maybe in January and it should be doubled. Um, And, you know... To give you an idea of our capacity in terms of documents, our tobacco area has, uh, as Stan said, over 90 million pages in close to 15 million documents. So we have the capacity to grow this thing and grow it big, and I'm super excited. Um, So our IDL team is small, but we are mighty. It's myself our head archivist, Kate Tasker, and we have two developers, Rebecca Tang and Sven Meyer, um, and they get the documents into our archive and keep us running 24-7, 365, Um, and that's pretty much it. We've had help along the way, um, and I'm so glad they're here. Dee Dee Kramer and Mimi Klausner have been a part of our team over the years and helped us a lot, Um, and so that's a little background. Um, I've had some questions lately about how we get documents into our archive and kind of why it takes so long. (laughs) So I thought I'd go over that really quickly. I think people are more used to the scan a document, put it on document cloud, right? Um, So this is what happens with our archive, especially with food where we've been culling some paper archives, which is a little bit different for us. So we get a paper document, we digitize it and create PDFs. Then we send the document out for indexing. So this means that each document is actually read and described by a human, who adds information to about 10 to 12 fields um, that we use for this archive. Title, author, document, date, people mentioned. So it's fairly labor intensive and quite costly, um, but I think it makes for a really rich resource. Um, we then OCR the document to provide full text search, and um, you know, developers then run a script that looks for um, personal information that we'd want to redact, and we try and do that proactively. And then finally we add the PDF and its record to our site and then rebuild our index of 15 million documents and push it out live, right? So this all, we do this on about a three to four week cycle and that's why it takes so long because it, at scale, it, it, you know, we churn the OCRing software you know, constantly sometimes and it goes about 800 pages an hour. So that's how it goes and the end result of this is what we hope is a rich resource of easily findable documents. So this is our shortcut URL. Um, You can go industrydocuments.ucsf.edu. You can also do idl.ucsf.edu. And that will get you to our main site. So this is our main page. This is the main industry documents library. Um, And you'll notice at the top there's all industries. Um, But underneath all industries lives all four of our archives currently, which is tobacco, drug, chemical, and food. And I started when tobacco was still growing, um, maybe 14 years ago I came um, to, to the um, IDL. And since then, we've also you know, grown drug and chemical and now food. And it's just, it's so exciting to see all of these new areas grow. All right, let's see. I'm going to take you right to the food industry documents archive, just in the interest of time. So I want to draw your attention, first of all, just quickly to our upper right menu. Um, here's where you're just going to find our content pages. Um, the help pages, um, some research tools, and this will grow as our content grows. We have a blog, um, you know, but that'll grow as well. Um, So here, you know, right now what I want to show you or what I want to draw your attention to is our bibliography, right? So we keep a running list of citations, uh, papers and publications that have been written using our documents. Um, Right now, because we just launched, there's about five in here. But um, I think that's pretty good for a launch, actually. You know? and, and this is really when using it as a primary resource, you know, not just talking about the library, but actually using our documents in the paper. Um, you know, so I know that we're going to grow. Um, just as a, a reference, tobacco has almost 990 Citations, and it's still growing. And a probably close to 800 of these are, are peer reviewed journal articles. So, you know, this definitely has the food industry documents, it definitely has the capacity to grow the research as well. We'll get there. All right, so back to the menu. The last one I want to point out um, is our collections menu. So, this is actually a drop down menu, and you'll see all 15 of our collections right now. Hopefully, it's going to start spanning across um, as we get more collections. Um, This is clickable, so if you want to look at any of these uh, collections, you can go ahead and click on one of these. Um, uh, Like I was saying earlier, we do have an FTC children's advertising collection which has the uh, public comments from that um, KidVid uh, rulemaking from the FTC in the 70s. So let's pretend we wanna look at the Robert Shank papers. You just click on that and you're taken to a collection page. This collection page is gonna tell you a little bit about the documents, you know, why we collected them, who this person is, but it also has a search box that allows you to do sort of a quick browse of this particular collection if you just wanted to see the documents in this collection. All right, so let's do a little search now. Um, You can, in our bigs, we have a big search box. It's kind of like a Google box. Um, You can print uh, just one term And you can just let that roll and see what comes back. You can do a phrase search. And if you do more than one term together as a phrase, you want to enclose them in quotes. Otherwise, it'll search for every word separately. You know, high and fructose and corn and syrup, anywhere in the document. So this will make sure that it comes back as a phrase. You can also do a little bit more complicated Boolean-type searches. So you can put a phrase together with... Um, some Boolean operators and some parentheses and that type of thing, and um, we can definitely handle that kind of query. And if you have trouble with Boolean operators, um, can't remember what to use, um, need help constructing a query, we've got some tips for better results over here where it's a guide that'll pop up and it'll tell you sort of every operator you can use Um, and that's allowed on our site and sort of how to construct and what it means, what'll come back. All right, so let's just use high fructose corn syrup as an example. Um, put that in, and I'm, just, I'm searching right now across all food collections, just as a default, just to let it roll and see what happens. Now I know you can't read this, this is too small, but I wanted to give a visual of what a search result page would look like, and to do it on a slide, I had to kind of make it really small. Um, so this is what's gonna come back. You're gonna get a bunch of records with thumbnails, for the documents and um, some ability to narrow your results and facet on the left. So I'm gonna zero in on this first result. So you'll notice that each document record has a fair amount of information. There's probably 12 fields here that are filled out. And I think this is what really sets our archive apart from other research resources. Um, It's the metadata, right? We're not just relying on full text search um, that you get with OCRing, we're coupling this with the, with the metadata, so this means potentially you can surface um, more relevant results. On the left you'll see, um, it's kind of truncated right now, it's cut off, but if you were to keep scrolling, you would see that we have um, the ability to narrow your results with faceting on the left. So if you did, like in tobacco, if you did a fairly broad search um, and came up with 100 and something thousand results, you're gonna wanna narrow it. That's, just, that's too many to eyeball. Um, so you can narrow it by document type, by brand, Um, by date, so document um, dates and decades, that type of thing. Um, But here we're just doing a really simple one. So let's uh, open this document, you click on the title, and it'll bring you to our document viewer. So the PDF um, is in the center, the metadata is on the right, which is the information about the document. And what I want to highlight for you quickly is um, some of the stuff Around the PDF. So, on the very top, you have pagination and the ways that you can size the PDF for readability. Um, because I know sometimes on laptops, um, the window is very small. <laughs> they, um, we have an option for browse and more like this. And I love this feature. This feature is amazing. We didn't have this on our old site. Um, so, this came about when we rebuilt. And what this is, is this browse button gives you the ability to browse this collection back and forth from your primary document. um, And sort of uh, mimics the original order that we got it in. So it's like pawing through a a file folder in an archive. um, And we try and keep it very much that way when we ingest it. So that if you look back and forth like this, it's in a carousel view, you'll be able to see the document that came before and the document that came after and after that. And a lot of times there's some really relevant stuff that was intellectually filed together. Um, More like this is, very much looks like the carousel as well, but what it does is it surfaces similar documents for you that you may not have found with your particular search words. So these are great, I love these. Um, And so let's go back to the document quickly. So say you like this document and you wanna do something with it, right? So first off, you can um, bookmark it. And bookmark it is really just saving the document for later. It's like putting it in a shopping cart. Um, And that's the first icon. The second icon is you can open it in your own browser window, so it'll open it in a new tab. Because a lot of times people like to use their own browser window for um, printing and that type of thing. And then um, you can download it to your computer. So you can download the PDF from right there. You can email it to yourself and you'll be emailing the record of the document with the permanent URL so you can always go back to it. You wanna email it to a friend, colleague, that kind of thing. And then the final icon is citation. So if you're working on a journal article or if you're just keeping records for yourself about documents that you wanna use, this'll download the, uh, the citation and then you can upload it into EndNote or RefWorks. We're working on Zotero and um, you know, either Excel, you know, text, that kind of thing. So we tried to make it as friendly as possible for different ways people want to get this document and use it. Let's see. All right, and so you've done your searching, you've done about, maybe you've you know, f- saved, bookmarked about five documents, and now you want to go and do something with those saved documents. At the very bottom, you will have a tab called bookmarks and you'll see there's a little number right there. So I went and saved five. And this is where you can then access these saved documents and do something with them. You can email them, you can download the citation, that type of thing. Now I do wanna say quickly that um, this will all, if I were to do all of this work and then close my browser and leave, if I came back, those would be gone. So they're, they're they're only session based. So I suggest if you're just doing some quick searches, make sure you download everything before you leave our site because it will be gone, except if you decide to have an account with us, which I think everybody should. So up in the very, very right hand corner is a, a little dropdown that says my library and, all, and there's a login right there and all you do to create an account is put in an email nobody tracks anything nobody you know spams you or anything like that it's really just to be able to have your own account for our site and that way once you're logged in anything you save is saved indefinitely and you can always come back to it so i suggest everybody do that and now i just quickly want to do one more search for you and i took us out to the all industries tab and really because i wanted to show like what kim was talking about there is such an intersection between food and you know, tobacco and drug and chemical and all of these industries. And so, I did a quick search um, for the phrase "sugar association," and I just let it roll across all industries, all four of our industries. And I don't know how big this is up there, but if you'll notice, you know, um, results came back in three out of our four archives just for sugar association. So it looks like, you know, there's the majority is in food, but there's about 279 in tobacco. And if you wanted to see just the tobacco ones, you could click on that. It would rerun it in tobacco, and you could see all of those documents. So I, um, and then um, I just uh, finally, after the site demo is done now. I just wanted to say, you know, you're going to have more questions once you start searching. Probably not now, but once you start searching, if you start searching, you're going to have questions, and all you need to do to get a hold of us is this Ask Us link at the bottom of every single page, and we, um, we encourage people to ask us questions. We love to help with searches. We love to help with, you know, weird questions about what's in the documents, so please ask us, um, and follow us on Twitter. Thank you very
3: much.
2: So we have a minute or two, if anybody has any questions for Rachel. I have a question from the Twitter audience uh, asking, how can the public submit new articles to the database?
5: Submit new papers? So there is, um, just go to the donate button at the bottom, and you can donate um, documents to us and we can appraise them and see if they fit with our scope, Um, and you can also donate any funds to uh, help process that collection.
2: Looks like we're done.
1: All right. So. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Alyssa Eppel, who I mentioned earlier this morning, who has been such a leader in the area of stress, food, and industry as well.
6: Thank you. Thank you so much, Claire. Uh, what an amazing, amazing event today. What has been seen cannot be unseen. This is a turning point for us. It is my really deep honor and privilege to introduce Laura Schmidt. Laura is an interdisciplinary researcher. She is a world leader in linking strategic research to policy, especially in the food realm. She's a professor at at, uh, um, Institute for Health Policy and Anthropology here. Let me give you an example of what has happened in the last few years. Laura has a gift of using research and insight, passion, and political savvy to talk to stakeholders to explain how urgent it is to rid our environment of liquid sugar, of sugar beverages. So she she and her colleagues uh, created a sales ban at UCSF. You cannot buy a sugared beverage at any UCSF hospital or campus. Thank you, Laura. So we evaluated this. We jumped to put together a team. We begged for some funding. The leaders at UCSF saw the importance of this. And we have a paper under review of the first sales ban showing that we actually created a health disparity intervention. We helped the most socially disadvantaged staff and workers at UCSF in a dramatic way with their intake and their adiposity and they were grateful, they wanted this. This is now a clinical trial uh, run by Jamie Schmidt, who's here out of the, at the Sutter Hospitals. We have a randomized multi-site clinical trial um, led by Laura that stemmed from this. So we are going to be demonstrating how some of these changes are, can improve public health. Someone recently asked me, what's the most compassionate study you've done? compassionate. So I study meditation. So obviously I would probably talk about a study that directly trained us to feel how we're connected to other people, to feel empathy, etc. My answer was that it was this study that I was so honored to do with Laura Schmidt. It is far past time that we stop teaching fish to try to swim and clean out the toxins from their water. We are um, so Last comment Laura Schmidt and my colleagues here who are doing this work, their life is not easy. They are under threat. They are intimidated by the greed of people who want to make profit at the expense of public health, creating diabetes and obesity. But my, Laura and my colleagues march on. They will not be silenced. Thank you so much for your work, Laura.
8: I'm going to get her to introduce me from now on. (laughs) We've been working on this archive for a while. And with the help of all Stan and this whole group, Kim, Kristen, and now we're launching it. And uh, I want to close out by talking about how even... Uh, before the archive, how documents research has really moved the dial on policy and public opinion, and the ways that this kind of work can have a real world impact. And to encourage everyone in the room and everyone listening online to join us in doing this kind of work, whether you're a middle school student or a, a policy person, a, a journalist, join us in doing this kind of work because it's impactful. So to start with, I want to just remind us of what's at stake here. Uh, I'm going to show you a moving graphic of the fattening of the planet Earth. So this is a comparison between 1980 and 1985 across the globe, showing you increases in obesity rates in various countries. So already China's 1.6 increase. Now here we go, 2,000. So the areas in red are, um, are up to a six times uh, increase, six-fold increase in obesity rates uh, compared to 1980. And here we are in 2015. 72 countries around the world have experienced a doubling of obesity rates within their populations. So I sometimes refer to this as the global warming of public health. So how does the industry respond to this? Uh, this, is, uh, this is actually from uh, one of Marion's books. It's a, uh, it's a Coke marketing executive who um, says, our Achilles heel is the discussion about obesity. And this is 2007, before it got even worse. Uh, it's gone from a small, manageable U.S. issue to a huge global issue. It dilutes our marketing, and it works against us. It's a huge, huge issue. So I was trained, one of my uh, areas of training, it was in public health. And I was trained that when you have an epidemic, the first thing you want to do is you want to understand the disease vector. Where is this disease coming from? And uh, you want to understand, and that's the first step in stopping the epidemic. So where's the outbreak coming from and why? Why? So right now, we still have uh, outbreaks of malaria in parts of Africa. So epidemiologists go to the source. They try to find the mosquitoes. Where are the mosquitoes breeding? Where are the puddles where the mosquitoes breed? And then that helps them find the kids. And they put a mosquito net on the kids closest to the disease vector, right, to protect them. It's basic public health. So it's no different when you have a chronic disease epidemic, obesity-driven diseases like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, stroke, dental caries. It's no different. Uh, you You have to look at the vector. And in this case, the vector is not mosquitoes. The vector is food and beverage companies. So industry documents are really about helping us understand the vector, right? They're about looking inside the industry and understanding what are they up to, why are they doing what they're doing, and what are they going to do next? Where are they going to go next? Which emerging market in this world are they going to go to next and market their products? And so that's really, uh, in a big picture, that's the value of uh, industry documents work. So I'm going to talk about three, what I think are three really uh, cool examples of ways that documents have really shifted debates and changed hearts and minds. And the first is around in, uh, revealing industry involvement in, in the scientific enterprise. And uh, ILSI came up before the International Life Sciences Institute, but I want to uh, give this as an example. Uh, a lot of people will look. I, I took this as a screenshot off of the Ilse website, right? Uh, this looks like a pretty nice organization. They're bringing scientists together to improve environmental sustainability and human health. Hey, I'm all, I'm all about that. Hire me, right? Well, <laughs> it, turns, it turns out, and this is a big organization, six, 16 branches all around the world, operating the global, the national, and the, uh, and, and regional levels. Uh, so Ilse turns out to be sponsored by corporations. Coca-Cola and food and beverage corporations currently are big donors, and it is essentially a scientific front group. Uh, it's all about um, producing science, as Marion talked about, That will um, favor scientific industry interests. One of the big concerns that I have about ILSI in particular is that I've seen journalists and I've seen peer-reviewed papers in the scientific literature where I suspect the person doing the reporting or the or the peer review didn't really understand what ILSI is, and so these articles from ILSI get published in, in mainstream scientific journals and are are treated as credible. So we have I mean Rachel didn't, get, didn't do a search on ELSI across all the documents, but you can be sure we have a lot of them in the archive. And one of my hopes is that people will start look, revealing uh, more and more about ELSI and sharing that with the public so that more and more people can understand what, what they're really about. And this isn't the only one. The Obesity Society, there are a number that are, are, are they're not just what Marianne described, uh, organizations that have a lot of corporate interests. These are solely funded by corporations. Uh, another example is um, uh, where, uh, where we've really gotten some traction. Uh, this goes back to the work of Anahad O'Connor at the New York Times, a really uh, wonderful journalist. And uh, Marion mentioned the Global Energy Balance Network, which is a major Coke-funded, Coca-Cola, not the Coke brothers, <laughs> Coke-funded Coke scientific effort uh, designed to show that you can exercise, basically that you can exercise away a, a, an unhealthy diet. Uh, and this really dovetails nicely with the a mar- marketing platform of Coca-Cola, which is basically you can drink our product and, and ma- as, you know, maintain it within the context of an active, healthy lifestyle. And um, so in August 2015, uh, Dr. James Hill, he's a professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine, uh, was approached um, uh, and denied that, uh, Coke, that, that uh, a $1.5 million donation to his lab uh, was uh, by Coca-Cola was actually You know, driving his research findings, and had any patently denied that it had any influence over uh, his research. Anahad went ahead and did some freedom of information requests, and showed in Dr. Hill's own words with Coca-Cola how influential the the corporation was. Now, here's where where there was real world, world impact the University of Colorado, gave the money back to Coca-Cola. Okay? Pretty cool. So this is an example of how documents allow the scientific enterprise to do a better job at policing itself. Um, I just want to point out, and this is in Marion's book and also in in some publications by Gary Ruskin, that after this whole event, uh, Coca-Cola said, okay, we're going to abolish the global energy balance network. And everybody in the public health community said, okay, you know, that's that's a good thing. Uh, However, they have this other project, ISCOL, which is doing the same thing globally. And, uh, you know, I've worked on World Health Organization projects, and this thing has the scale and scope of a WHO multi-site study, 12 sites. Uh, They're studying children uh, to determine that physical inactivity is the cause of childhood obesity all over the world. Uh, So it's not over yet. (laughs) Uh, We also have documents that are shedding light on uh, uh, health officials who have deep ties to industry. So this is Brenda Fitzgerald. And up until January of this year, uh, she was the director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, in charge of public health at the federal level. Uh, and this is a, a screen grab I took off the Coca-Cola website, and that's Brenda. <laughs> so she worked extensively with the company, and once again, as you can see, around this marketing platform that you can exercise away at childhood obesity and you can exercise away an unhealthy diet. Now, in January, she stepped down from the CDC, uh, but that was because she had some ties to tobacco, a tobacco company. <laughs> However, before that point, uh, Russ Green at CrossFit, who was mentioned earlier, and others had been doing uh, uh, freedom of information requests that had revealed her ties to Coke and shed light on that. So great stuff around clearing out scientific conflicts of interest. Now, a second way that I think that we can um, that documents really help the, the the real world is by shedding light on industry's next steps, helping policymakers to anticipate what will come next. And um, Marion mentioned the D.C. leaks documents, and this actually comes out of that collection. It's in the in the in the archives. So anyone here, anyone with an internet connection anywhere in the world, can just download this document if they want to really take a good, solid look at it. But essentially, this one is the Coca-Cola game plan for the European Union: what they're going to do, and and on the y-axis the uh, vertical one what you're seeing is their assessment of the impact on their profit margins if these policies that are all the little dots in the in the in the diagram comes to fruition in Europe and along the x-axis is the likelihood that they think it will materialize so highlighted in yellow the thing that they are think is most likely to materialize and also will have the biggest impact on their profit margins, guess what? Soda taxes, <laughs> right up there. And, and you can see they're saying, we're going to fight back hard on that one. <laughs> so what I found interesting uh, when I looked at this document is that every time I'm seeing the, this company or the whole beverage association's platform on soda taxes, they're saying soda taxes don't work. They don't bring down consumption. But my question is, why would they be so worried about the business impact if soda taxes didn't work and they didn't bring down consumption? So a little closer to home. Now, I don't have the notoriety or name recognition of Marion Nestle. <laughs> However, I indirectly did sort of appear in the documents, in the DC leak documents. LAUGHTER Um, And this is just a portion of of one of the documents, and here you have uh, monitoring by the corporation of activities at the state of California level, Uh, Assemblyman Bloom, who I have uh, supported as a uh, pro bono scientific advisor, and you have the city of San Francisco, uh, who I also supported the uh, Board of Supervisors in, in thinking about how the evidence lines up with uh, soda taxation. Uh, and so that's my indirect connection to the Coke documents. <laughs> and so um, I, I put in red, th- what what this is, is this is an inform document, which means they're letting everybody know what the company's up to. And it says the California Beverage Association has got it covered when it comes to uh, a soda tax in the state of California. And in San Francisco, they say, and this I found interesting, they say the coalition groundwork is already underway in Oakland because Oakland wound up announcing a soda tax and both passed in, in the 2016 ballot. Um, But but we're all over Oakland. And what I found interesting about this document is that this was um, an an April fourth, two 2016 document. And I happen to know that the Oakland soda tax wasn't even announced yet. So again, documents can help you uh, um, understand and anticipate what's going to come next, right? It's good. Uh, So while we're on the subject of soda taxes, I I want everyone to appreciate, and this document, by the way, is a really long one, and it's every country all over the world. I mean, it goes on and on what they're up to in every country around soda taxes, but I want uh, people to appreciate that um, they were right. It, It was very likely that soda taxes would materialize. Their game plan was correct. And so far, we've got th- 33 countries or 35 regions and countries that have passed soda taxes. Uh, soda taxes that have been shown to work. <laughs> so uh, I think that's good news, and that's very important for us to bear in mind. Uh, Finally, the third way that I think that uh, documents help shape public opinion uh, is is by shaping public opinion about the product and its industry. And when you shape public opinion, when public opinion changes, a couple of things happen. One thing is consumers vote with their feet. And they say, you know, I really don't like this company, so I don't think I'm going to support them with my, my dollars. The other thing that happens is that it emboldens politicians and policymakers to regulate the industry, because their constituents are asking for that. Uh, so I want to. One of the things that's a little bit frustrating about working in the public health field is um, that as soon as we these battles against industries to bring home public basic public health infrastructure are so hard won by advocates and policymakers, and yet as soon as they as they happen, it's just the new normal right? And so how quickly we forget that you could buy cigarettes in the 1950s at bedside in our very hospitals on this campus, right? And now we just take it for granted that we're going to be able to breathe clean air uh, indoors. I knew you'd say that. (laughs) Okay, I I have a response to that. (laughs) Seatbelts, airbags, right? Right. We've got lots of examples, motorcycle helmets is another one. In every case, public health advocates fought hard against an industry that didn't want to get regulated, and in every case, we take it for granted that people's lives are gonna be saved as a result of that effort. And so this is a, it's frustrating for public health uh, folks, but it's also a really rewarding thing when you see the norms change, because that means people smoke less, people get sick less, right? Uh, So, so, you know, what documents research is really able to do, and I think this is a long-term change. This is not a short-term change, although we've already seen evidence that it's changing around the food issue. Uh, It's it's that it shifts attitudes and norms over time. This is a, you know, right now the e-cigarette debate in kids is a really, really big issue, threatening um, a whole generation of children. And this is an example of denormalization. The tobacco industry has a kid's menu, bubble gum, e-cigarettes. The same thing is happening in um, the food area. Um, this is a, a wonderful image from Dean Schillinger's group. Dean. <laughs> and, uh, and the New York City Health Department. I, if I had time, I'd show you the whole uh, advertisement uh, are you pouring on the pounds? Uh, so what a wonderful I- image of normative change comes out of the bottle as soda and it goes into the glass as body fat that'll that 'll stick with you right Okay, so three of probably many others, but three ways that documents make a difference in this, in this world so uh, this is our closing uh, our closing of the meeting, and I want to um, sh- encourage everyone here to think about using the documents Rachel Rachel taught us all how. I learned a few things (laughs) from her presentation. And so it's it's open to anyone with an internet connection and we really want people to make use of this amazing public good. Thank you. Should people hold on? We're going to have a little a little bye-bye.
6: So we're going to have Q&A now. So please ask, Laura, if you're not done. Um, this has, you know, revealed a lot, stimulated a lot. What What are your most pressing questions, please? I need it. We are about back here.
7: Hi there. The the U.S. intelligence community has determined that DC leaks is a front for the same group that hacked into John Podesta's email. And we also know that they're engaging in propaganda uh, propaganda campaigns specifically in the anti-vax space because they know that if they undermine our public health that way, they can make us sick as a country. I don't think they would do the same thing for, for the diet industry, but... Do, have you seen any kind of evidence of manipulation of those documents for political reasons?
8: Really interesting question and uh, not to my knowledge, Marian, do you po- political um, distortion of the DC leaks documents, distortion of the DC leaks documents for political ends?
1: I haven't seen anything like that. I mean, they're gone.
8: They're gone. Yes, yeah, she's right. They're gone. Yeah, if cool. if, sorry. Our, if the library hadn't, Dee, Dee hadn't snapped them up, we wouldn't have them. Yeah. Um, Stan has a thought.
4: Well, well, So that's that's an interesting question, and I, I I mentioned in my remarks that the original box of documents that I got was about four or five thousand pages, uh, which were purloined from the tobacco industry. And then, in response, the cigarette companies said, "Oh, these are misleading," and they released another four or five thousand pages, which was actually the original collection the library put up and the interesting thing was if you t- the, the four or five thousand pages the industry released if you looked at them all by themselves, it kind of exonerated them. But if you put them together with the four or five thousand pages I had. The pieces fit together, and you got a much clearer picture of all the naughty things they were doing. so I, I do think you raised a, 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 an interesting issue, and I think if that is the case, and coca cola and and these other uh, industry groups want to release more of their internal documents so that we can have a clearer view of what's going on. I'm sure the library would be more than happy to ingest them. Um, And in fact, Jewel, you know, uh, Laura talked about the the e-cigarette problem. They came and met with us a while ago because they're based here in San Francisco. And they said, well, we would love to make our internal research public. And I said, we would love you to give it to us. But they haven't given it to us yet. So...
0: John? Just a comment, as a, as a longtime user of the library, uh, the synergy of having all these different things in there is really incredible. Right? Uh, I mean, I study climate denial and the people who do that, and you see them. You know, I, I, I routinely put somebody's name in here and they pop up. Okay, like like the the Philip Morris executive who is a VP of marketing for Cloud Coal. Okay, right. Uh, uh, here's a good one. If you put in Exxon into the um, tobacco uh, section you get 20,000 hits. Okay, right. And that turns out, I think, to be because so many cigarettes are th- sold through gas stations. But that's the kind of thing you see. Again, the, the aggregation of the different industry stuff is really powerful.
8: Yeah, John, you make a really good point. And I do think that there are some entities. Some of these front groups, like ILSE, for example, seems to me like kind of a, a clearinghouse for Corporate-funded research, and I don't know if the carbon people are in ILC or not. But there are ways, and, uh, and I think this has been our experience. Kim, Kim, and I, and, and Casey Palmer as well, working in the in the tobacco archive on food. When we started out, we thought we had 30,000 documents. Uh, now Kim is like, I have no idea how much we've got. It could be like a million. <laughs> Literally, and because the more you look, the more you see, and we haven't even gotten out of Philip Morris and RJR those collections and into, you know, the European tobacco companies in the UK and so forth, and so I think it will become a situation where the more you look, the more you find, and we and this beginning effort to look across industries is going to become uh, going to reveal a lot. And it's so wonderful that be able to cross-search so these these document libraries can be connected. And I think carbon may be next.
6: This is clearly a tremendous undertaking that you guys have compiled this resource. And it's going to take a lot of expertise to utilize it well. What will help you most quickly in this endeavor?
8: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say it as, as boldly as Dan would. He said money. <laughs> I would say um, fill, support, <laughs> support <laughs> in all manner. I, I think documents as okay. well as well as f- funny, for the library because you know a lot of our research is funded at, uh, through NIH, and uh, NIH doesn't really fund a lot of infrastructure development. And certainly something like this, which is a global public good. I mean, we're it's it's something. It's a very unusual resource. And so having uh, a basic endowment for the library to continue to, to, I mean, there are a number of collections that that the library's even gotten authorizations for that we don't have the resources to collect and digitize and put online.
6: Thank you so much, Laura. Okay, question in the back.
8: Laura, um, this question was
5: actually asked earlier, but I think it, um, I wanted to get your take on it. So what's the perspective for preventing
8: and reversing the preemption of soda taxes at the local levels? Okay, so what Dr. Kimber Stanhope is asking is that it's a kind of wonky issue, which is that uh, it's possible at every level of government all the way up to the global level for um, a a larger um, governmental entity, say a state, to pass a law that makes it, constrains the ability of a locality, anything under it, to, say, pass a soda tax. And that this is a strategy that my colleague, Dr. Eric Crosby, and I, and Dean Schillinger, have just um, uh, written about. Uh, this is happening. It, it was honed by the tobacco companies, but it's really a, a kind of generic Strategy used by a lot of different industries, from the gun control or gun lobby to, um, and now soda taxes. So, in the United States, uh, in areas where there was local action to uh, pass a soda tax, as in California, where uh, five Bay Area cities decided that they wanted to do that, uh, the American Beverage Association came in and it did a sort of 11th hour backroom, closed-door Sunday afternoon deal with the uh, California senators to pass a law that says no more soda taxes in the state across the 50-some-odd counties, over 100 municipalities, and many were prepared to do that. And so um, this can happen at any level of government. So currently in the in the renegotiations of the NAFTA treaty, uh, there are efforts to get that kind of language in there around front-of-package labeling, warning labels, such as in Chile, that warn parents that this cereal isn't good for your kid. Uh, so this is a, a, a challenge. And um, and the question was, how do we stop it? Uh, well,
5: the last time we talked
8: about it, you know, days after it happened, you were quite depressed. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was, because... <laughs> A lot of people put a lot of energy in the Bay Area <laughs> into into to working on this issue, and uh, yeah, it's it's a, a definite setback for public health it, uh, in the tobacco uh, area. Eric estimates that for every state preemption law, it took about 11 years for the advocacy community to roll it back. So it's a big um, it's a big challenge for to public health, and um, the the. My best hope is that uh, uh, (laughs) Michelle Obama, they go low, we go high. (laughs) They go low, they they go to the state, we go to the federal level, or we go to the state level, you know, or whoever, yeah.
6: Okay, we're going to have one last question for Laura, and then we're going to have all the panelists come up, and we're going to have general discussion. And this last question goes to Robert Lustig.
7: Laura, you know where I get on. Uh, Most of what's been talked about this morning from all the uh, uh, speakers, has been about sugar as the you know primary culprit. But we know that sugar is just the tip of the iceberg. There's way more. There's the issue of trans fats. There's the issue of genetically modified organism foods. Um, in addition, there's the question of how does food impact the other public health things that we're talking about, like climate change. You know, agriculture is 30% of climate change. seems to me that we now have the capability and the cross-indexing and metadata to be able to link these issues. Stan started with, you know, it was about breathing clean air. Do we have plans to, shall we say, expand this into something even bigger going forward?
8: Is the, is the question, do we do plan to... Look at other industries? Sure. Yeah. I think all, I mean, the main issue is is documents and funding. The more, the better. The more, more pieces of the puzzle you've got, the easier it is to solve it.
6: Okay. So I'd like to invite all the speakers up now. And um, everyone raise your hand if you have a question. I want to see. Okay. Okay, great. So we will start over here. Quick. Keep
4: it. So so just to, to add one more thing to Laura's answer to, to Rob, this this resource is there, it's free, and I think Rob you should just start going in and answering your questions. Uh, and I, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that in a flippant way, because as I said, once we put the tobacco documents up there, by making them available to everyone in the world. People came and looked at things and did things that we would have never had, not, not just not had the resources to do, we would have never even thought to do. So I think all of you, when you go home, go to idl.ucsf.edu and type in your favorite word and start reading. <laughs>
9: <laughs> so I want to first of all thank uh, all of the presenters and, and Claire uh, especially for putting this together because it was a great um, Expose, I suppose, and a, and a great description of a new resource. But sitting here and sort of taking the 10,000-foot view, the these uh, tactics that have been used by these industries are not focused only on sugar, only on tobacco. It's sort of what's created the assault on science in general that we're seeing today. And I wonder if you want to react, because everybody's doing creating controversy Um, There is no controversy about vaccines. There's no controversy about uh, global warming, but the industries have taken this on. So I just wonder if you could comment on this general tactic that the PR companies have given to us.
4: Well, okay, yes, you're right. And, and, in fact, there, have been, there was a book published a few years ago called The Republican War on Science, which is mostly based on the documents. The book Merchants of Doubt, which is mostly about global warming and led to the movie, is a lot based on the documents. And, you know, I, the, the, these are, I mean, I think anybody working in this space is one way or another addressing that issue. And uh, I I think the more, again, the more people who dig around in here looking for those kind of questions, the more we're going to see, and it's at least going to become harder for them to do it.
9: I I just wanted to say that I actually agree. I think the public relations industry is probably the most unscrutinized industry out of all of those that we've been talking about here today. And that's where I think we're going to find the most important information that's going to inform us moving forward. So I'd like to see us really be talking about that industry more specifically.
8: And the documents have a lot of material on PR firms, and some of them were shared by multiple industries. Exactly right, yeah. I just
6: plan a suggestion. Those of you who are from the industry who are here or listening, I want to plant the seed of how much more impact you could have by joining this effort. As an insider, make your life count. At the grave, what are you going to be thinking about? It's not the car you're driving. Okay, I'll stop. So, uh, any any last comments on science? Um, how? Sorry.
1: Yeah. I was just very taken by the person who uh, talked about teaching young students uh, about this, and I was wondering whether the university has. Um, done yet, or has uh, gotten anybody in the education
8: world to create a segment of materials for, um, you know, the high school problems of American democracy class, um, or maybe even for undergraduate, you know, government classes that utilize this and sort of teach about truth finding and and truth in science.
4: Well, do you want? I don't know. We, when, when they designed the website, the redesigned it. They some of the testing was done on high school students, right, to make it accessible to them. And while I don't, we haven't specifically. I don't know about the other people here. We haven't specifically done that, but there are teachers who have. And we in the tobacco collection, we do an annual training for like real people. And sometimes teachers do show up, and I know that they're planning similar things for the food. Collection. Do you want to add
5: anything? No, I just, um, you know, we that's a great idea, and it's something we have batted around for years. Um, we just haven't had the the personnel capacity to do it yet, um, but we have been talking for years now. There's been different teachers in the Bay Area and beyond that would ask us for help with their curriculum, and so over the years, we have dealt with teachers, but we haven't made our own curriculum yet, so.
6: Yeah, these are great ideas. There's, there's room for everyone to be contributing to this cause. We get one
9: last question.
6: The back. From the back.
9: So with respect to changing the... I'll stand up so you can see me. With respect to changing the narrative and getting a step ahead of the industry with in policy making, um, how do you deal with just the sheer amount of money that they have, even if we have information on our, as the policymakers' side? For example, in the Washington preemption ballot initiative that's come up a couple of times <laughs> Um, For soda taxes, which they dubbed grocery taxes, um, I think the spending differential was $20 million funded fully by the beverage industry to $100,000. It seems really hard to get philanthropy to step in, and that just seems like an almost insurmountable challenge. Well, I th- I, the microphone was handed to me, so I, didn't. <laughs> so
1: I guess I have to answer it. Um, I, think this, I think the soda taxes are a really good example. Um, the soda industry has put hundreds of millions of dollars, literally, into fighting soda taxes, and yet soda consumption is way down. It's been declining since 1990, it continues to decline, um, and disp- despite the money. so. The word is that the public health word is out that sugary drinks aren't good for you and you just keep trying to do that in whatever area you're working on and hope that eventually it gets traction. But that's one example where it's working at least in this country. I really think that's an excellent question and I think that one of our allies are going to be health insurance companies and health providers. Because as we become responsible under accountable care organizations, where we are responsible for a panel of patients and keeping them out of the healthcare system, that some of the perverse incentives that we've had in the past are not going to be as effective.
4: I mean, you know, it's true that the, the soda people won in Washington, but they did lose in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And here in San Francisco, After the city passed the ban on the sale of all-flavored tobacco products, R.J. Reynolds came in and spent $12 million in a city of 750,000 people trying to get it overturned at the ballot, and they got 32% of the vote. They got crushed. Now, that was because, and somebody mentioned, you know, the groups like Michael Bloomberg uh, and and uh, the campaign for tobacco-free kids, and the Heart Association, the Cancer Society, and others, actually put money in. And while the tobacco interests way outspent the people supporting the flavor ban, if you have enough money to get your message out there, the fact that they're way outspending you doesn't matter. Yeah. So. You- yeah.
8: Yeah. um, There's some evidence from the early evaluations of the Bay Area soda taxes. The consumption started to go down before the tax even took effect. And that's probably a symbolic effect of the policy debate. And one of the kind of things that rolls around in my brain is, uh, does the incredible investment of money in robocalling people, I mean, in, in Berkeley I think it was almost 100 bucks a person for every resident that lives there, you know. And and every BART station, every bus is, pl- is plastered with these no on E, measure e or whatever, that, that and, and calling it a grocery tax when people know it's not. Um, at a certain point, the public starts to say, what's up with this? Why are they spending so much money? Maybe I should look into this. And at least I know um, from living in the Bay Area, as these taxes were going down, people would say, you know, they, my mailman said, you know, oh, that's BS, you know, it's no grocery tax. Yeah, so I, I do think that it may actually be a, um, they may be shooting themselves in the foot because it makes people wonder about why are they fighting so hard. Yeah, and in fact,
4: in fact the, the, if you go back and look at the history of tobacco, the tobacco industry beat back Two initiatives on clean indoor air in 1978 and 1980, which were, by today's standards, ridiculously weak. And that is what engaged the public and laid the foundation for what's happened now. And with answer to Kimber's question about the state preemption, I mean, that was just a law the legislature passed. And I don't understand why the health groups aren't going up there and making them repeal it. It's very simple.
6: All right. (laughs) Um on that simple but hard note, I'd like to thank our amazing speakers for their absolutely critical, timely work. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for staying to the end, hearing this first unveiling. Think about what you're going to do. The speakers are here to talk to now for a few minutes, and I'm going to hand it to um, our our host of the day, the amazing Claire Brindis. Thank you so much for putting so much time and care into this. So important. Thank you so much, and I want to thank the panel members, but I also want.
4: really worked hard on this and really should have been one of the speakers, too, because without Claire's commitment on all of this, this just wouldn't have happened.
8: Yeah. It
1: takes a village. I also want to thank uh, Jay Sullivan and Beth, you, and Samantha for their tremendous contributions for how well this day went. To me, the theme of the day is unveiling, is really bringing transparency a transparency to this very complex topic, to really educate everyone in different dimensions, using social media, using the press, using advocacy and community groups. It's really going to be a very long-term battle, but we're in it together, and I'm very optimistic that we're going to make great, great progress. So thank you, everyone, for coming and joining in our community. We will be sending a follow-up on a link to today's uh, presentation, so we hope that you will share it with others. And we really invite you to use this incredible resource, and I'm so grateful to our library and to all of the librarian, archivists, etc., who have made this happen. So thank you so much.